Welcome back to Civil Action with Sean Karnakian and Brian Kabatek. I did that's it backwards me. that way today. Well, yeah, that's interesting. That's me. I'm Sean. And the I'm Brian. Is Brian. Yeah. And what we do in these uh, podcasts is, other than interviewing really interesting people, which we're not, we talk about interesting cases that have recently come down uh, from the United States Supreme Court, the California Supreme Court, the California Court of Appeal, the Ninth Circuit, and uh, California um, other decisional authority that comes out of California, which might be interesting to our we listeners. We do have a Supreme Court case today. We actually have a United States Supreme Court case today. And for the first time shot in a long time, go ahead and tell me, where's the United States Supreme Court located? In Washington, Very D.C. good. What do I get? What do I win? If you can name three justices, you win a prize. Steak dinner. Okay. Sotomayor, Roberts, and Scalia. Nope. Nope. What happened? I've got bad news for you about <laughs> Justice Scalia, but we'll talk about it later. Okay. So you can find us online at kbklawyers.com. Uh, we put on seminars and other educational stuff, and we like to stay in touch with people in the community. So please reach out if you have any questions or if you want to talk about anything. Um, let me tell you a little bit about the cases we're covering today. We're going to cover a Supreme Court case that has to do with something called defense preclusion. And uh, no, that's not a mistake. I didn't mean to say issue preclusion or claim preclusion, defense preclusion. We're going to learn about that. Um, next, we're going to look at a case that has to do with tolling of the legal malpractice statute of limitations. And afterwards, we're going to look at uh, cost of proof, like when you win on an RFA or you prove that somebody didn't answer an RFA properly. And lastly, we're going to look at an interesting criminal case that has to do with juror contact, just because it's it's interesting and it has some relevancy to uh, civil cases. We're going to talk trials. about the uh, criminal code of procedure, right? So it turns out that the it doesn't exist. There right. isn't a criminal code of procedure. Shant learned that just moments before we started recording. Yep. I learned that today. No, no shame. But I'm not going to make fun of him for it. All right. Our first case today is the United States Supreme Court case. It's a unanimous United States Supreme Court case called Lucky Brand Dungarees versus Marcel Fashions. It's out of the Second Circuit. Um, but it involves a very novel, interesting issue about, as, as Shant said a moment ago, defense preclusion. Right. So basically the facts are as follows. The facts are moderately interesting. These two companies are both in the apparel business. They've been in the apparel business for years. Lucky been, jeans. Yeah. Is that what you're wearing right now? No, I'm wearing a suit. I'm wearing a suit, an uncomfortable suit. So uh, only uncomfortable because of the extra 20 pounds because you put I'm on too big. during, yep. during yep. coronavirus, yep. right? So, so what uh, happens between Lucky Jeans well, and they, Marcel? They, they're fighting over the term Lucky. And that's apparently been 20 years of litigation between them, a bunch of different lawsuits where these kind of issues are being uh, litigated, settled, resolved. And in a new lawsuit, um, the, the plaintiff raises an affirmative defense or, or the defendants raises an affirmative defense, uh, a defense that the plaintiff claimed was precluded under the notion of a defense preclusion because the the defendant here raises a defense that says hey i i think it was lucky that was the plaintiff here so marcel says hey lucky you agreed not to assert these claims like 10 years ago or something in a settlement agreement and then in response marcel says or in response lucky says uh, yeah but we're asserting them now and the argument for defense preclusion is you didn't raise these arguments before in a similar case that w was being litigated, so you can't raise them now. So you've waived it. It's kind of like an issue preclusion, claim preclusion type of argument, but well, it's let's, a defense preclusion. Let's talk about that for a minute because issue preclusion is specifically when an issue was actually litigated and actually resolved by parties with the same standing or at least the same ability to have standing in, in a prior case. That's 
issue preclusion. The, the issue is dispute, uh, disputed, adjudicated, resolved, done. It's uh, that issue. Claim preclusion. Claim. I can't even say it. You okay? Are you okay? I'll take over. Claim preclusion. How do I do? Claim preclusion is when you could have raised an issue but failed to raise it, and now you're barred from raising it again. Is that right? Well, exactly right. That's exactly right. And so those are accepted principles in law. And obviously, if you're looking at issue preclusion, it's laser focused. Claim preclusion, there I got it, is a little bit um, broader. It, It has to involve a common nucleus of operative facts. It has to be sort of the same claim, but it's it's broader race. It's something that could have been litigated in prior litigation. But this is the first time the Supreme Court or most any courts are dealing with the issue of defense preclusion. Right. And so what happened here is the court pretty much skirted the issue. And the reason they skirted it was they said, this defense wasn't raised and wasn't touched upon, nor yeah. could have been in prior litigation. I, I think one of the things that they focused on is the common nucleus of operative facts. And they said this this defense, while it could have been raised earlier and it wasn't, the case where it could have been raised involved a different set of facts. It wasn't the same conduct. It wasn't a common nucleus of operative facts. So they seem to imply that defense preclusion exists and this principle exists, but all they say is that it couldn't have been, it it doesn't apply here. I mean, an oral argument, Justice Kagan specifically said that they were going to look to take the narrow and easy path to decide the case and not actually decide whether or not defense preclusion exists. And I don't know if they're going to find that defense preclusion exists, that a defense that could have been or should have been raised in prior litigation, even if it wasn't, is um, subject to preclusion in subsequent litigation. Indeed, the court says that this court, meaning the Supreme Court, never explicitly recognized defense preclusion as a standalone category of res judicata, unmoored from uh, claim preclusion and issue preclusion. So they seem to be acknowledging that it exists. It's something that can be asserted. So I don't know, interesting interesting, uh, principle. Um, I don't know how much it plays into cases, but hey, if if you're... You know, doing uh, lengthy litigation, sometimes complex litigation, claim preclusion, issue preclusion, it, it does come up. So this is something to be on the watch for. Issue preclusion, claim preclusion, race judicata, collateral estoppel are all important principles. But this is the first time I've come across a case that actually deals with defense yeah. preclusion. It's an interesting issue, yeah. especially if you're litigating against the same party in subsequent cases. Do they get yeah. to keep raising Similar, but not exactly. I mean, identical it's something defenses. good for plaintiff lawyers to know because it it's, it's it's sort of an affirmative tool that hey, you, you could have raised this defense before and you didn't, so you're screwed. So, um, you know, it's worth a read. Yep. All it's right. So, or just listen to us because we just told you everything right. you need to know about it. Right. Let's go on to our next case. Let's return to the great state of California, the California Court of Appeal from the Sixth District, Wynn versus Ford. Uh, and this case involves um, legal malpractice. Right. Wynn is the client and Ford is the former attorney. Pri- prior lawyer. Yeah. Right. Uh, Wynn apparently had uh, discrimination claims or I, I think it was sexual harassment claims, some sort against her former employer. Uh, Ford represented Wynn and made these claims, lost on summary judgment, and then afterwards— In the Wynn district said, court. In the district court, in the lower court. And Wynn said, well, I want you to appeal it. And Ford said, well, my retainer specifically excludes appeals, which is not a bad idea to include in your retainer. Uh, so it's not covered. So Wynn signed a separate retainer agreement. Uh, Ford started to handle the appeal, and soon enough, there was some issues that came up. They had a breakdown, or they had uh, artistic uh, differences, I guess. Right. And Ford had to make a motion to withdraw as counsel, and the Court of Appeal granted it. 
And the motion was made in the Court of Appeal because that's where it was. It was Ninth Circuit. The, yeah. Sorry. In the, yeah, Ninth, in the Circuit. Ninth Circuit. Court well, of it's, Appeal. it's yeah. court, court of Appeals. Appeals. Right. But when you're in state court. They only do one appeal at a time. It's Court of Appeal. Yeah. But um, on the timeline side of things, I think that the the lawyer was out of the Ninth Circuit case probably around 2015, 2016. Yes. And uh, somebody else took on the case, lost in the Ninth Circuit, came back, um, the case was gone, it was done, and uh, Mr. Nguyen or Ms. Nguyen decided to sue Ford for legal malpractice. Right. In, like, 2018, a long time later. And what do we know about the legal malpractice statute of limitations? Well, the basic fundamental rule is it's a one-year statute of limitations, but there are exceptions to that one year. And one of those exceptions is for continued representation. So the first interesting thing about this case is what does continued representation mean? And I did not know this. I don't know a lot of things. In fact, uh, Brian wouldn't be surprised by this. But I didn't notice, all kidding aside, that tolling for uh, – you get the statute of limitations tolled for continued representation, but the representation must is limited to a specific subject matter. Right. That so only applies to a specific subject matter. Just because you're my lawyer handling multiple cases, you screw up one of them. The, the tolling doesn't apply just because you're handling another one of my cases. The, the tolling only applies while that case is ongoing right. or that matter is ongoing. Right. And so one year later, you've lost the right or the ability to file a legal malpractice case. And Not just while that case is going, uh, uh, while you are representing the client in that case specifically. Right. And that kind of leads us to what happened. And one of the issues in this case was that um, – there's no question that the lawyer got out of the Ninth Circuit case in a motion to withdraw. And the argument that Wynn raised was, well, but you never withdrew or filed a motion to withdrew from the district court case that, of course, was long over because it had gone up to the Ninth right. Circuit. The, the district court didn't have jurisdiction of the case at the time that the, that the lawyer here was getting out. Plus, the Court of Appeal points out that uh, Ford had served uh, plenty of information and given notice that he's out of that case, too. Uh, and, and But Wynn's argument was, I didn't know. I just didn't know that so, they were out of that case. That's so another that's interesting another important thing. point. That's another case. point. It's an objective test. It doesn't focus on the client's subjective belief that the representation is continuing. It's an objective test looking at the actions, looking at what was actually going on at the time. It also doesn't require a formal withdrawal. And that's another interesting point. Doesn't here. require formal withdrawal. And I didn't know that either. It's when, so you it's don't when need a to reasonable a client would know that he or she is no longer being represented by that lawyer. Right. And here, the court, the court really, really struggled with this case, didn't they? No, no, they didn't. In fact, they said, and I know maybe Brian wanted to read this line, but they said, we have little difficulty concluding that the trial court appropriately sustained Ford's demur. Right, because in this case, the facts of this case were that uh, the district court case was over. The lawyer withdrew in the Ninth Circuit. There was no reasonable expectation that any reasonable client would have that Ford was continuing to represent Win in the district court case. And so the argument about uh, tolling just didn't carry the day. And the court also raised that there are other reasons, and apparently because Win threw everything in here, including like a breach of fiduciary duty, the court said, this isn't – there's not a fiduciary duty you're talking about here, but that's a different rule too, which could toll the statute of limitations if there's a claim of breach of fiduciary duty or concealment. Yeah, but they didn't find it here. So the case gets thrown out on the demur and it was affirmed. Right. right. And one of the arguments here was, well, um, it was a breach of fiduciary duty. It was actual fraud because Ford violated 
his or her ethical obligations to the to the client. And and the court said, nope, that's that still falls under the same standard. There's no actual fraud. There's no indication of actual fraud. And then Nguyen went on to ask for leave to amend, and the court said no, because— Right, and the court actually points out that aside from aside from the client claiming actual fraud and just using that conclusory term, there are no allegations of actual fraud. So, Nor are there any client—and and this is a good point, is if you're going to ask a court, particularly a court of appeal, for leave to amend, establish what you're going to say. Give them an offer of proof. And that's right. one of the things the court looked at here. All right, should we go on to our next case? Next case. Universal Home Improvement, Inc. versus Catherine Robertson. This is out of the um, first uh, DCA. And uh, this involves a some kind of a, looks like something that started as basically a family dispute, right? I don't know if it's a family dispute. It involves like a very convoluted technical uh, series of loans, and which is code that it's money. too complex for us. Yeah, we're, we're and, and no, I really don't think it's that relevant to the yeah, facts here. It, but it was family transactions involving borrowing money and paying it back, right. and get not paying it back, and then getting the plaintiff. The let's just say this: the plaintiff is a creditor trying to collect on on a debt, and the defendant is a uh, defendants are a one debtor and their sister, and the creditor claimed that there was a fraudulent transfer that should be invalidated. That that that's the argument here. Okay, so the defendant prevails ultimately under underlying case. I'm not giving I'm not giving it away. No, that's it's, yeah. it's, it's important Let's to understand start there. because yeah. the, what the whole case is about, at least in my opinion, is when can you recover attorney fees for failing to admit a request for admission? Right. The cost and, of proof. And so we know, and we've called. talked about before, that that there are cases out there that say that the cost of proof is recoverable, the attorney fees are recoverable if you fail to admit a request for admission. And I frankly think a lot of lawyers don't use them enough, and they don't set them up enough for that purpose of saying, look, I asked you this question a while ago. However, here, however, here, the request for admission was made within about a month of the defendant. So the defendant served the request for admission about a month after they got, um, they answered the complaint. And the the request for admission was, um, in my humble opinion, not necessarily narrowly tailored. It wasn't. It it was something very, it was really broad. It said they, it it asked the plaintiffs to admit that they had no claim against the defendant. Uh, The other way around. Yes, that's right. You're right. I'm wrong. Yeah, because at the end of the, mistake the defendant wins at the end of this case. Right. Um, but that was really the request for admission was admit that you have no claim against the plaintiff. And, of course, at the end of the case, the defendant prevails and they go back and they say, well, you know, they didn't admit it. Well, the court first looks at what the standard is for um Yeah, the trial, the trial judge brought it. The trial judge said – Yep, uh, they proved you wrong. They won at the end of the day. The defendant, uh, the defendant won at the end of the day. You plaintiff should have admitted that you have no case when you got served with this, like a couple of months after filing your complaint. You should have admitted that you have no case, and I'm awarding a bunch of attorney fees. So, it was like upwards of thirty thousand dollars. And that's the standard rule, right there, is that if you are able to prove a request for admission that they denied, you should be able to recover. But there's an exception, an important exception, and that's that if the party failing to make the admission had reasonable grounds to believe that the party would prevail on the matter. So that's subsection B of the RFA section, which is 2033.420. Do right. I think that anyone actually writes that down? The, the section? Yeah, people are sitting when there I, when, when I When I rattle them off like no, that? No, I'm, like I'm going barely, to lectures and people I'm barely give you paying sites. attention to you and I'm, across from, I'm sitting across from you, so no. And they say that um, 
the interesting one of the interesting parts about this case is they actually talk about what is an abuse of discretion because that's the standard. Yeah, I like that little discussion too. Uh, it's the discretion that the discretion that a trial judge has is um, is not intended to be capricious or arbitrary. Capricious, capricious or arbitrary, but an impartial discretion guided and controlled in its exercise by fixed legal principles. So. It's not just they could do whatever they want because because how would they violate that? How would they abuse that? Uh, they have to be guided by legal principles. And they say that, you know, that happened here. He wasn't guided by legal principles uh, or he or she or the, the judge and it shouldn't have been awarded. And they point out that the one of the lines that I liked is that the brief that the defendant, the party that prevailed in the underlying case and uh, was advocating for getting their costs of proving the RFAs. Uh, they merely drew a straight line from the admission to the statement of decision as supporting their claim for fees. So they said, this is what we asked. We asked the plaintiff to admit that they have no case. They didn't admit it. And then we won. So we should get our fees. And the court found that that wasn't a thorough enough analysis. They found that the trial court abused its discretion. In well, but in, and in here, in this one specifically, they, they were really focused on the fact that this had been served so quickly and it was so yeah. broad, and they said that the fact that the whether or not the plaintiff had a case was vigorously contested at trial. The defendants actually filed a motion for summary judgment and, and they lost. lost. Yeah, they equate it with um, being able to bring a, a malicious prosecution case after you've lost a, a motion for summary judgment, which is a no, you can't do that. And so, at the very end of the case, they talk about very quickly about three other cases where plaintiffs were trying to, or someone was trying to recover on a request for admission, and one was. Um, that that a in a property dispute, the losing party already had a reasonable belief in its position by relying upon a surveyor. Another one is a personal injury case where the defendant who lost on summary judgment nevertheless had a good faith belief he would prevail. Mm -hmm. And third was a personal injury case where the losing plaintiff had a reasonable belief in her position of possible liability. And, and the court says, and now we add a fourth. So I think the real lesson to take away from this is that these these absolute requests for admissions are just very, very difficult. The to super get over. broad ones. So, so on the plaintiff side, I would say, don't press on them. Don't don't serve you know requests for admissions the day after you file your case that says admit that you're at fault right. and you owe us damages. Right. You know, don't serve that. There's no point. I, in I that. Don't, don't think there's anything wrong with saying in a personal injury case, admit that you're liable. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Especially, but but I think that it's also good to offer some other ones like admit that you were going beyond the speed limit. Admit that you were following too closely. Right. Uh, you know, admit that you be um, a little more specific. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Don't admit that. Oh, admit that you lose. You know that you're not going to win on that. And if the other side is trying to put, put push you on something like that, you know, don't worry so much about it. Look at this case. You know, there, there's grounds there for being able to oppose the cost of proof uh, fee request. Our last case today is really one more of interest than than applicability, although I think there's a, a threat of it here for plaintiff's practice. It's called De Hoyos versus Superior Court. It's a, it's a criminal case. It's a habeas case. Don't worry. Don't turn it off. We're not going to get into a deep discussion about criminal. But what did happen in this case is that the, uh, the plaintiff, or sorry, the I'm really losing it today, Sean. I need There's help. There's no plaintiff in criminal cases. I need help. Do you mean the, the people of the state of California? The petitioner. The oh, petitioner. The person seeking habeas redress relief. under appeal in, in in the appeal. Yeah. Was was seeking to get contact or make contact with jurors from his criminal trial, which was something like twenty five years earlier. Yeah. Long time ago. Yeah. 
And previously, this had, I think, had gone up on appeal. It has a kind of convoluted history. And previously, the Supreme Court had remanded it to the Court of Appeal and told the Court of Appeal, go tell the trial judge to take another look at this and vacate his order, not allowing the, the I'll call him a defendant, not allowing the petitioner to contact former jurors. Tell him to either vacate it or show cause. And the trial judge, well, I found this funny, that the trial judge ultimately didn't vacate it and said, I refuse to. I don't think I should. So that's the issue that that's being that's dealt how with the court of appeal. Yeah, but what's interesting about this case is very different standards for when you can contact jurors between criminal cases and civil cases. And maybe it should be obvious, but in a criminal case, uh, there could be some fear of juror facing reprisal from the uh, convicted defendant or the convicted defendant's colleagues, family, whatever. Uh, very difficult to get the names. Um, what they said ultimately is that they have to show a willingness to be contacted, and then the court has to issue an order that specifically allows. The court acts allows, as a gatekeeper. The, right. the, the, that's another thing that it pointed out that I learned from this case. The court acts as a gatekeeper when it comes to contact with uh, with former jurors from the case, but not true in civil cases, right? And and in fact, in civil cases, um, the the standard is the CCP section that they specifically cite here that pertains only to criminal cases is 206, CCP section 206, which led Shant to say, but it's a criminal case. So I started looking at the code section and there's mention of like in a criminal case, uh, you know. But in California, so. the, the procedure for what happens in a courtroom is generally governed by the CCP. Yeah. So like, for example, 170.6 is in the CCP, but it pertains to all cases. Right. It doesn't just pertain to civil cases. I didn't know that either. And here, Section 206 pertains to the prohibition against contacting jurors in a criminal case. However, mm -hmm. also cited as CCP Section 237, which pertains to how in civil cases you can you pretty much have unfettered access to the identity of jurors or the ability to get and jurors. The ability to contact them. The if, ability if they're to willing contact to talk. them. Yeah. And the courts can order it. But there is no prohibition, generally speaking, in a civil case about contacting a juror. And uh, I, I recently had a case that mistried. And in that case, the judge made a specific order were not to talk to the jurors. Now, at the time, I thought that was a good idea. But after the fact, I thought, can he really do that? And is that really true? I mean, obviously, there's a court order and we wouldn't violate the court order. But after a mistrial— After um, reading this case, maybe not. You know, in, in this case, the court tried to say, no, you can't do it. And then the Court of Appeal ultimately said, well, the court can be the gatekeeper and manage and manage the initial contact to ascertain whether or not jurors want to communicate. In a but criminal they, case. And this is in a criminal case, so I'm assuming it's a higher standard here. It's a higher standard. It's a much higher standard. There's, there's a clear prohibition. I mean, I don't think there's anything that prohibits you in a civil case from contacting jurors. Now, jurors have— and judges are supposed to give an admonition. You don't have to talk to anyone. You can if you want. You don't have to. Is that jurors can say, I don't want to talk to you. The jurors can say, I do want to talk to you. And, you know, we've been in some cases where we're the winners. And the defense constantly go out and try to interview jurors to find some kind of misconduct. Yeah. But fair game, right? Yeah. What what I what I learned from this case is that there is no criminal uh, code of uh, or procedure. Code of, code of criminal procedure. Code of criminal procedure. Well, you can start writing one. Right. No. You no, can do that. I'm okay. this, do it this week. I got plenty of work. Mr. Kabatek has to be very busy. Who's Mr. That's Kabatek? you. That's you, sir. Okay. Uh, hey, thanks all That's very all much. Have. That's all we have. That's all, folks. That's all. Thanks for tuning in. You can find us online at kbklawyers.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for reaching out. And we hope you tune in again.